This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 23rd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. It's hard enough to deliver accountability for police engaged in misconduct. What happens when your local police are also deputized federal agents? James King was beaten unconscious by members of a joint state-federal police task force in 2014 in a galling case of mistaken identity. His case, even after going to the U.S. Supreme Court, continues. Patrick Giacomo is with the Institute for Justice, represents King. We spoke last month. So I uh, was a student at the time. I was 21 years old, walking uh, on a beautiful summer day down the sidewalk. Two men sort of beckoned to me, and uh, I approached them. They asked who I was. They asked what my name was. I told them, my name is James. And they asked me if that was my real name. Um, I said, yeah, that's my real name already starting to get a little bit suspicious or feel a little bit weird. Um, They asked me if I had my ID with me. I thought that was an odd question for two strangers on the street to ask me. So I uh, lied and said that, no, I didn't. Uh, That wasn't the truth. I had it in my back pocket, which was quickly um, found out by one of the men when he boxed me out and pinned me between the other guy. And he said, oh, yeah, and what's this? And he reached into my back pocket and took my wallet out. Again, these are two plain-clothed men on the street that in a matter of seconds took my wallet out of my pocket. Um, and that was when I was realized I was being mugged. And so I did what I thought was the appropriate move and ran. I didn't make it very far. I was tackled, and uh, a fight ensued. I was choked, unconscious, uh, beaten pretty severely, punched in the head uh, repeatedly to the point where all of the capillaries in both of my eyes were bursts. While this was happening, I was yelling um, as best I could for anyone um, within earshot uh, to call the police. Eventually, the the police did show up, um, and I was very relieved when they got there. Um, I grew up in such a way that I always uh, was taught and believed that the police were there to protect us. And uh, when you're in trouble, those are the people to turn to. So when they showed up and arrested me, I was very confused and quite literally concussed. I thought that they were there to save me. I thought the men that uh, were beating me were going to kill me. I feared for my life. Um, So when they arrested me, handcuffed me, and put me in the back of an ambulance, I was pretty shocked. Um, and it got worse from there. I spent some time in the hospital. Then I was taken to the county jail where I was arraigned. Um, and a bond or bail was set uh, for $50,000, which was money that I knew that I didn't have and I knew that my family didn't have. I later found out that I was charged with three felonies and that the two men who accosted me were law enforcement. One was a city detective and the other was a federal agent on a joint task force looking for someone that did not match my description in any way, shape, or form, whose crime was a petty one. I made uh, bail thanks to a bondsman, spent six months uh, waiting for a trial. That trial came and I sat the first day listening to these officers on the stand, lying through their teeth and having no qualms about ruining uh, a kid's life rather than admitting a mistake that they made. 
this was sort of the first foray into me learning about the many injustices um, that are committed day in and day out. And I remember my trial attorney, this is something that's always stuck with me. When I told him the story, I got done and he looked me in the eyes and he said, if you were black, they would have killed you. And me being a 21-year-old naive kid, I was very shocked. But the way he said it, I knew that he was telling the truth. And that's always stuck with me. So throughout the trial, um, I got to tell my side of the story and I was acquitted by jury of my peers, unanimous decision that I had done no wrong. I also remember on the morning of the trial, I was offered a plea deal, which I've since learned many people will take because it is very hard to, um, to face the police and win. I, of course, knew that I didn't do anything wrong. And I thought that um, admitting that I did something wrong when that wasn't the truth would be lying and that wouldn't be the right thing to do. The American Civil Liberties Union uh, helped represent me in that case. And I remember after she told me that she was terrified when I said, no, I'm not going to take the plea because most people don't make it out of that. So despite how terrible everything is that happened to me, I still get to say that I'm lucky that I didn't end up in prison, um, I wasn't killed, and I have no severe lasting physical injuries. What is your view of the police now? My view of the police now is complicated. I'll admit that when I see them on the street or if I were to be pulled over, the amount of anxiety that rushes through my body is intense, and I wish that would go away. Um, I don't think it's likely to. I don't blame all police for the actions of a few, but I do think there are serious changes that need to be made at the policy and um, legal level that can help disallow this type of thing to happen. Because right now, as it stands, there is little to no accountability for police officers that do wrong and violate people's rights, as they did to me, and that allows them to do this with impunity over and over again. And again, I understand that this issue is beyond me and that there are communities who suffer from this and deal with this day in and day out. And I can't imagine how tired they must be and how hurt they must be. Decades of dealing with this kind of abuse that has been unchecked and frankly gets worse as time goes on. I assume you've uh, received sort of an unwelcomed education in a lot of the legal issues that are uh, around this issue. What's been the most surprising thing that you've learned? I certainly have received a crash course in, in the legal matters surrounding my case um, as it's proceeded on the civil side and in the criminal side. The first and most surprising thing to me was this doctrine of qualified immunity, which in a lot of ways suggests that police are immune to violating people's constitutional rights. Um, and because of that, they, I feel, often um, do their jobs um, in ways that, that they shouldn't. Um, their job is to uphold the law and to be civil servants. Uh, but because they feel they're immune to repercussions of their actions, they don't take their job too seriously or 
oftentimes they do it with malice intent. Now, the other thing that surprised me greatly um, is how convoluted and complicated and nebulous the law is. And because of that, precincts, law enforcement, and prosecutors, defense attorneys, they all get to hide behind and play the shell game of these complicated legal issues, which I still barely understand. And certainly when people ask me, you know, when the lay person or a friend or family member ask me to explain, you know, what, what, is, what does all this mean? What, do, what does your court case entail? Um, I have a very hard time explaining it. I think, too, that no one um, without the great benefit of a good attorney would be able to navigate the system by themselves. Patrick, you are James' attorney. This case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the disposition, it's not over. Why is it not over yet? And why did the court not say very clearly these officers violated James' rights? They, they've left him with severe anxiety w- related to uh, interactions with police. Uh, this is something for which someone should be held accountable. So what did the Supreme Court say? Where is the case now? Yeah, so the short answer as far as why is that because of this hodgepodge of immunity doctrines, courts aren't particularly interested in whether uh, the actions of government workers violate the Constitution. They're much more interested in these legal technicalities like qualified immunity. And so in James's case, we actually were able to prevail um, over qualified immunity in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the response from the government was that the U.S. Solicitor General then appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court and asked it to create a new type of immunity um, through a statute called the Federal Tort Claims Act. And the Supreme Court took the case, but it decided it very narrowly. And it decided it in such a way that it's so limited, it's hard to imagine um, that the result of the case will impact a bunch of others. And the big takeaway from James's case is the Solicitor General was asking the court to end his case before he would ever have a chance to step into a courtroom, and, and the Supreme Court declined to do that. And it explicitly, in a footnote, said, hey, there's another issue here that the Sixth Circuit needs to decide before we can weigh in. And Justice Sotomayor wrote a concurrence that really followed up on that. And so the takeaway here is that James's case, now seven years after what happened to him happened, is still going on and still in the appellate courts. And after all this time, James has never set foot inside a courtroom. So do you have any expectations? The issue that uh, the Supreme Court singled out as an important issue that the Sixth Circuit didn't deal with, what is that? So essentially, the uh, the position that the Solicitor General took was that when you bring more than one claim in a case, which is common in civil rights cases, they effectively cancel each other out. And our response to the Supreme Court on that issue was, this rule can never apply to claims brought together in a single lawsuit. The rule the government's pointing at is one that prevents you from bringing duplicative lawsuits on the same issue. But when you bring claims together in one lawsuit, as James has done here, the, the, the claims don't cancel themselves out and you should be allowed to go to the merits on any or all of those claims as long as the law is sufficient to let you move forward, which it is in James's case. So what do you expect from the Sixth Circuit? I don't know what to expect, honestly. Um, we have briefed this issue after remand from the Supreme Court. It's been about six months and we're just waiting for the Sixth Circuit to do something. And at this point, it could do any number of things. It could ask for additional briefing. It could ask for oral argument. It could just decide uh, what it's going to do. And unfortunately, we have no indication what or when it will do those things. 
James King is the subject of the case Brownback v. King, still ongoing, and Patrick Giacomo represents King on behalf of the Institute for Justice. We spoke last month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.